Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. My name is Chris. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Upper Room Fellowship. It's good to see you all here today. <clears throat> Come on in from the lobby if you'd like, if you can. Close the doors, lock them out if we have to. We're, I'm serious. We're in a series called Love is Blank. And so you know all the sermons uh, given here at the Upper Room Fellowship are, oh, hang on, almost forgot, change for a dollar. I leave it right here, and then I just just ignore it every time. Larry and Ethel Campbell. There you go. Thank you, Mother, for frantically waving at me. I appreciate that. So as I was saying, all the sermons given here are online at urfellowship.com. Letter U, letter R, fellowship.com. They are also available in podcast form if you ever want to go back and listen to them. So in this series, Love is Blank... We have been saying that it's, it's just all about love. It's really all about love. When it's all said and done, it's that simple. Growing in Christ is growing in love. Everything in the Christian life is about love. So we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul tells us what love looks like. Uh, <clears throat> so if you want to pull that up or if you want to go, I'll just read it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. And now this morning I want to talk to us about how love is not rude. Okay, love is not rude. So let's, let's do big picture review again. I'd like us to see the continuity of 1 Corinthians 13. All these things Paul talks about go together if you kind of see the rationale that's going on here. God creates people, and he designs us so that we would, we would receive his love and then reflect his love back to him and overflow with love towards others. And, and God's design is that his life would be poured into us. His life would then transform us, and then we'd overflow with love back to him and towards one another. It's a beautiful arrangement. In Genesis 3, we see that this whole arrangement hangs on a, a provision and a prohibition. Okay? At the center of the garden, it says in Genesis 3, Genesis 2, uh, 3, 2, and 3, at the center of the garden, there was a provision. It's the tree of life. And there was a prohibition. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what this means is that life, as God intends it, revolves around. Uh, everything hangs upon our trusting God for his provision to meet the needs of our life and our honoring the prohibition to let God be God. He's the judge. We are not. And so we will leave the knowledge of good and evil and all judgment to him. And when we do that, now we're in a position where we can walk as God wants us to walk. The, the, the fall screws all this up in Genesis 3. And what we see is that we violate the prohibition. We eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We become judgers instead of lovers. And now we try to be our own provision. We try to get life for ourselves. We're created with a non-negotiable need for for worth, for value, for significance. These are non-negotiable needs that every human being has. But in the fall, because of sin, we don't trust God to meet those needs. And so those needs have got to be met, or at least we have to try to meet them ourselves. So we try to provide for ourselves. So the world becomes just a uh, stage of idols we try to get life from. Because we, need, we, we are trying to meet the needs that are in our life. 
We move to the center and the world revolves around us. But now it's not a center of, of fullness, it's a center of emptiness. And our addiction to get our needs met is what holds the whole thing in orbit. Everything in life becomes a strategy for getting life. And when you're living out of that emptiness, you will be rude. Just like you'll be impatient, you'll be unkind, you'll be envious. It can't help but happen. And here's why. If everything is about meeting a need in my life, all my relationships are about meeting a need in my life, then what will happen invariably is this. My strategy for people who mean something to me, who can feed me in some way, will be that I'll treat them very, very good. But if you've got nothing to feed me with, if you have nothing to offer me, well, then you have no worth for me. That's what rudeness is all about, treating people like they have no worth. You could define it like this. Rudeness is basically saying, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what your feelings are. Your opinions, they don't matter to me because they have no worth. And, when, and where we're operating out of emptiness, inevitably this will occur. The boss comes in, all of a sudden you're Mr. Nice. When P on Joe comes in, you barely notice the guy. So you're rude. It's part of our strategy for getting life. Now before I say more about rudeness, I want to make two points that I think are very important. First point is this. I initially struggled when I was feeling led to, by the Lord to kind of pick apart 1 Corinthians 13 in this detailed of a way. And the reason is because I couldn't conceive of ever putting together a sermon on rudeness. It sounds trite, right? Oh, today we heard that you're not supposed to be rude. And you know, I, I like to talk about like big cosmic stuff, huge stuff. It seems like rudeness, it seems small. So how are we going to Get, I'm going to do a whole sermon, you know, on rudeness. How am I going to get these people excited about rudeness or not, not being rude? But I think I, I have a very different perspective now. And uh, I think it's the kingdom of God perspective. Because often the things that our natural mind, to our natural mind, seem unimportant are to God very important. And stuff that to our natural mind seems maybe Important to God is maybe pretty insignificant. Rudeness is incredibly important. And here's why. Paul says that anything you do without love is worthless, right? Any belief you have, anything you say, anything you do is worthless. It's religious noise if it's not done in love. What gives value to everything we do is love, okay? Number two, love is about affirming the worth of others. You can't affirm the worth of someone while you're ignoring their worth. Okay? That's why rudeness and love are totally incompatible. Love is essentially about being considerate. So any belief you hold, any action you take, however true and noble it may be, is nothing more than religious noise if it's accompanied by rudeness. It follows right from 1 Corinthians 13. When we're talking about rudeness, you're talking about something extremely important to God. Because so you can have... You can have all the right views on the Trinity, have all the right views on the Incarnation, and have the inerrancy of the Bible down pat, have every correct interpretation of the Bible you want, but if you're sharing it in a rude way, completely worthless. That makes rudeness huge. It's not insignificant. What blows me away is that, you see, I mean, frequently people get together on social media or just in, in person, they debate 
you know, aspects of Trinity, eschatology, incarnation, pneumatology, but hardly ever debate things like rudeness. Because that's just not very important. But we debate things like the Trinity and incarnation and stuff like that, and those things are important. I'm not saying those aren't important. But what happens is we often get rude about it. We get mad about it. We start getting belligerent with one another about these things. And as I'm reading Scripture, the minute you get rude about it, there's no worth there anymore. You're just making annoying noises at each other. Even if you're right. Even if it's completely worthless. You're just a, planging, just a bunch of clanging gongs. Noisy symbols. Rudeness is extremely important. Second point is this, and this is a little bit more involved. I need to say that it's so important that we, in hearing Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, don't interpret him as giving us one more uh, ethical rule that we're supposed to remember and live by. And here's why. Because in our, our natural state, we will always move toward religious activity. Right? We love the law. Give me the list of do's and don'ts. That the, that's the essence of our fallen state. We tend to take everything in the New Testament as though it was a, a, a thou shalt or a thou shalt not. And then we try to, try to, try to do. And so, so, you know, it'd be easy to hear in this message in terms of me saying, thou shalt not be rude. And if you think that's what I'm saying, thou shalt not be rude, then it's, it's just a little ethical mandate. And now you'll go out there and you're, you're going to try to remember, okay, I'm not supposed to be rude. I'm not supposed to be rude. Of course you got 9,700 other, other things you're supposed to remember as well because you got your list. And so now you're focusing on yourself, saying, I'm, I'm going to try not to be rude. I'm going to work my best at not being rude. And now your focus is all on your behavior. And you'll feel good about it when you're not being rude. You'll feel bad when you are being rude. You're assessing things all over the place. And at that point, you've turned this biblical teaching into an ethical rule. And now, now, of course, there's, you know, now we're just getting warmed up. Because there's a lot of ambiguous areas, isn't there? Life is full of ambiguities. It's always more complex than our rules seem to accommodate. There's a lot of times when it's not clear whether you're being rude or not. Now what are you supposed to do? Am I, how am I doing? Am I or aren't I? Constantly assessing yourself. Well, what do you do when you got a person who just won't go away? You know? There's some people who take up every second you have until you cut the conversation off. And no matter when you cut the conversation off, they'll accuse you of being rude. You got people like that in your life? I'll loan you a couple if you're kind of running low. <laughs> but for some people, there's no boundaries. And so you just have to say, I'm sorry, I got to go. Oh, how rude. Well, I never. They'll accuse you of being rude. So now, so now the issue is, what is the quintessential essence of rudeness? And how does it apply to this situation? How does it apply to that situation? And who knows? And it says, if, I could, if we could just figure it out, if we could just work it out, if we could get all the rules for all the situations that apply to all people and at all times, then finally we'd be able to be, not be rude. And all the while, we've entirely missed the point of what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 13. He's not giving us a thou shalt not be rude. He's not telling us to go out and try your hardest not to be rude. What he's saying is, live in love. And he's giving us help to notice when we're not living in love. 
And then the solution isn't to white-knuckle it and give it our best effort, not to be rude and bite your tongue. The solution is to find your life in Jesus Christ. There's a world of difference between how how you see these things. Is Christianity a list of moral ought and ought-nots, or is it about living life? And I want to submit to you that everything in 1 Corinthians 13 is simply a description of what full life looks like. What Paul is saying is when you live in the fullness of life, this is what it looks like. And here's what it doesn't look like, so you can kind of notice when you're not living in the full life. Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What we tend to hear is, is, thou shalt be loving. Thou shalt be kind. Thou shalt have joy. Thou shalt be gentle. Thou shalt have self-control. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. And now you go out there and you try your hardest to do the fruit of the Spirit. But if you think about it, if you could do it, it wouldn't be the fruit of the Spirit. Paul isn't saying, here's a new list of do's and don'ts, so start working on your behavior. Because when we do that, our focus isn't on Jesus Christ, it's on ourselves. And since we're looking at our behavior, and misery loves company, we start noticing others' behavior. And so our little judger cranks in, and we start telling people, you ought to be joyful. What are you not being joyful for? Start being joyful. On your market, said, go, be joyful. You got to be kind, you got to be loving, you got to be gentle. You ought to have self-control. You oughta, you oughta, you oughta. I'm trying, you better try too. And all the while, we've totally missed the point of what Paul's getting. He's not saying, here's nine more oughts to add to your list. Rather, he's saying, give up on living for yourself. Give up on that old self and accept the outrageous free gift of eternal life that comes in Jesus Christ. Learn to enjoy the Spirit of God. Learn to let the Spirit of God flow through you. Learn to let the Spirit of God transform you. And when you do that, here's what it's going to look like. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'll get to rudeness here in a second, but I think this is important. Life is very ambiguous, correct? We'd like to make it perfectly clear. Wouldn't it be great if, you know, all the good people were over here and all the bad people were over here and there was, all the issues were either, you know, you're on my side, you're on the bad side. That's how it is, you know. Everything's just so nice and neat and clean. Life isn't like that. And so what happens is when you're getting life from your ability to figure it out, to resolve all this stuff, either you'll impose a sort of black and white simplicity on the world and you'll become a very arrogant person. It's not fun to be around. Or you'll get all knotted up in your head. Well, because things are you know, ambiguous, I better try harder. I better think this through. I better find the right insight. I've got to figure this out. I've been reading some more books and maybe that'll help. Maybe that'll do it. And we do it with ethics and we do it with doctrine We do it with Bible passages. What's the right theology? What's the right eschatology? And if you're getting life from having the correct opinion and all that stuff, you're going to be all knotted up in your head. And the sad thing is you're not getting closer to life at all. Someone came to St. Augustine. 
Uh, he was a famous, the, the famous bishop of Hippo in the 5th century. Um, and a monk came to him, and the monk was all knotted up. Just like, I'm not sure, is this a sin if I do this? Is this, is this a sin if I do that? Well, what if I think this thought, and how do I get rid of this thing? And I'm not sure how to interpret this passage. And what about this theological issue? And how, how do you reconcile with this, with that? And all these kinds of things. And some people succeed at making Christianity nothing more than a puzzle to figure out, don't they? As if one more book or insight, or if I take my faith apart and put it back together a little differently, it will finally crack the code. And if only they could get it all figured out, they could get to living it. But they never do get it figured out. So they never get around to living it. And that's, what, that's how this guy was, all knotted up, just driving Augustine crazy. So finally Augustine said, kind of famously, he says, you know what? Love God with all your heart and do what you want. Because see, what Augustine knew is this. Life isn't found in your ability to resolve all those kind of knowledge of good and evil questions. Life will always be much more ambiguous than we can ever get our heads around. Some issues I'm convinced are just not solvable. We're just going to have to learn to live with them and love each other. But if you love God with all your heart, if you're getting loved by God and with all, all of his heart, and you're starting to flow in that, you know what? It puts all those questions in kind of a different perspective. Life doesn't hang on them anymore. And so there can be this kind of lightness and levity. Not that they're, not import, not that they're unimportant. Think about them, deal with them. But life doesn't hang on them. And you know what? You're going to usually end up doing the right thing if you're operating out of love, loving God, if your motive is love. You're being transformed into the likeness of Christ. You let the Spirit of God guide you, and maybe you make a wrong decision now and then, but it's not going to be terribly destructive because worst-case scenarios, you didn't quite love as perfectly as you should. So you learn from it. You move on. And see, there's a lightness. There's a freedom there. Now you're starting to live that full life Jesus came to bring. When people come to me and they're just knotted up about theology and what about this passage and they're trying to resolve certain issues and then eschatology and pneumatology and they've been to 18 churches and none of them quite did it right. So they're all knotted up, out of a good heart, wanting to do the right thing. But unfortunately, Christianity to them is a big mystery to unravel. Or if they could just get some deeper, new understanding, then everything would fall into place. What I say to those folks is, is basically what Augustine said to, to that monk, I say. I want to encourage you to do this. Put a two-month moratorium on all those issues. And just spend, it, spend that time looking into the face of Jesus Christ. Because this is choking the life out of you. It's good to be concerned with right doctrine. It's good to be concerned with the right thing to do in the right situation. But you know what? Everything, everything hangs upon whether you approach those questions out of fullness of life or whether you approach those questions out of an empty center trying to get life. Look at Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we gaze upon the Lord, we with unveiled faces behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. What you see determines what you become. It's not what you can figure out. It's not having just the right godly opinion or where you end up in your eschatology or pneumatology or whateverology. Life is found by looking into the outrageously loving, gracious, compassionate face of Jesus Christ. 
You grow into his likeness as you look upon him. That is what, what is transforming. That's the one thing that is needed. It's like Martha. You know, Jesus comes over and Martha's going nuts trying to fix up the house. Well, Jesus like my house. You know, is it, is it all clean? Is it all nice and tidy? But Mary did the one thing that was needed. And all that she did was sit at the feet and just hung out in Jesus' presence. Then Martha tries to co-op Jesus to clean up the house. Jesus, can you help? Tell my sister to help me out. Jesus said, there's only one thing that's needed. That's what she's doing. People run around the room of their theology or the room of their ethics, and they think, I've got to get God to like it. I've got to have the right opinion. Got to have this, got to have that. Got to make sure my house is in order. The one thing that is needed, the one thing that is transforming is to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ. And that's not saying that other stuff is, isn't important. It's fun to read, talk about. Let's keep on growing, keep learning. It's try, you know, try to have sound, balanced doctrine on all points and all that. But just know your eschatology is not going to transform you. It may affect some things, but it's not going to give you life. The only thing that can transform you is the outrageous grace and love of Jesus Christ flowing through your life. We turn Christianity into kind of this problem to be solved. Have you, you know, I'm going to get to rudeness here in a minute, but have you noticed how Jesus systematically avoided all those kind of issues all over the place? Just avoided them. You see this all through the New Testament. People are always trying to get Jesus to Come in and settle one of their issues. We're having a debate here. Jesus, show him how right we are. That's what we try to do. We try to give divine authority to our own opinions. They're always doing that with Jesus, trying to trip him up. In Luke chapter 12, there's a guy. uh, In this culture, he wasn't getting an, an inheritance. The firstborn got all the inheritance, and this guy apparently was the secondborn. So he's getting a little bit ticked off. So he says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, Who made me judge and arbiter over you? Jesus is like, Wait, do I, do I look like a lawyer? You know? That's an odd answer. You would think the guy would say, Well, no. You're not a lawyer, but you are the judge of the universe. So maybe you can help me out here. But see, Jesus, he didn't come to bring clarity to all the issues of life. He didn't come to make life all crystal clear. And I know there's a lot of Christians who want want life to be crystal clear because they want their opinions to be right. And I think usually it's because they're getting life from their own opinions. And they want Jesus' authority to go behind them. But maybe it's just me, but I find life to be very, very ambiguous at points. And so we often try to co-op Jesus in on it. And Jesus, he doesn't take the bait. I'll tell you this, though. He usually turns all the questions back on the questioner in order to try to get them to see their need for life. He says to the guy asking for inheritance, I'll tell you this, beware of greed. With your brother, you know, get a lawyer, I suppose. You know, you're going to have to do something here, but know this, life isn't found here. This money won't bring you life. In fact, beware of greed. Life does not consist of the abundance of things you possess. He points him toward real, full life. He didn't come to offer a new ethical system. Ten points to, you know, how to get your mean brother to like you. 
eight points to have the perfect marriage, you know. He didn't come to give, you an, uh, give us a new ethical system. He came to give life. Diedrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, Jesus did not call people to a new religion, but to life. He doesn't give us all the answers we might like, and he doesn't resolve all the disputes. I believe one of the reasons why the Lord left so much ambiguity in places so that we would learn how to love each other. Jesus didn't come to give us a new ethical system. He didn't answer all the questions that, about what technically is, you know, justifies divorce and what are, what are the rules you're supposed to live with on the Sabbath. Can you pluck corn like he did? And are you supposed to heal on the Sabbath? And what exactly should our opinion about the Roman government be? Should you be like Matthew, a conservative, or Simon, a liberal, or should you pay your taxes? And he didn't answer all those questions. What he wanted to do is wake people up to the reality that life isn't found in those particulars. It's found in emptying yourself and accepting the new life that comes in Jesus Christ. And you know, the thing is, I'll get to rudeness here in a second. This is my new strategy for preaching, just so you know. I'm going to say I'm going to talk about one thing, then talk about something completely different the whole time. Which is, I guess, kind of rude, I guess. But, uh, which I'll get to in a second. But here's the thing. People are starving for life. Right? They're starving. We are created to have God's full life. Fullness of life. Abundant life. John, Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, I've come that you might have life. Have it abundantly. People want life. They're not starving for a new ethical system. They're not starving for more religious duties or whatever. They're starving for life. That's why the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they just wanted to be with Jesus. He had the aroma of life. He was fully alive. And the prostitutes who knew that, their life wasn't working for them. They just, they smelled it on Jesus. And tax collectors and the others, you know, run-of-the-mill people, they could smell it on Jesus. And they didn't have any theology on him being the Son of God. And none of them knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. But there was a gut-level something that said, I need what he has. They gravitated toward Jesus. He was a magnet because he had life. And everybody's hungry for life. They steered away from the Pharisees because they're not hungry for fear. Just a little bit more guilt trip, a little more shame. That smells like death to people. Do you remember the invitation? And I'll, I'll talk about rudeness here in a second. But There's an invitation that was offered. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like this. The king was going to have a banquet, so he invited all the people that you, know, you were supposed to invite. The dignitaries, the big shots, the muckety-mucks, you know. But see, those folks, their plates were already full. They don't have time. So they all gave these excuses. Can't come, love to, sorry, maybe next time. So the king's kind of ticked off. And he goes, I'll tell you what. Let's do what a king never does. Let's invite everybody. Let's just throw a banquet. This is what the kingdom of God is like. You go out in the highways, and every single person you see, invite them. The losers who don't have anything else to do. Maybe they're hungry, and maybe they would like a royal feast. You go out there, and you include the tax collectors and the prostitutes, you know. I mean, really scrape the bottom of the barrel here. Because you're going to find some hungry people there. And invite them to this great feast. This is what the kingdom of God is like. He doesn't invite people to a bunch of rules. Or to a discourse on the proper view of rudeness. He invites them to a party. The kingdom of God is a party. Why? Because there's food 
It's the kind of food that we feast on. It's the kind of food that we're made for. You got your spiritual chicken, your spiritual mashed potatoes, your spiritual, what are those long green things? What are they? Asparagus. Asparagus. Spiritual asparagus. I forgot what they were called. I could see them, but I couldn't think. We don't want to invite anybody to a religion. What we are called to invite people to is a party, a feast. That's what it's all about. Okay, rudeness. Rudeness in five minutes. You know, it's just this. Jesus, throughout his ministry, you find him being considerate to every single person. He just was considerate. It was incredible. He didn't treat the important people one way and the unimportant people another way. Because everybody to him was important. If anything, he seems to reverse it sometimes. To the unimportant people, man, he just had all the consideration in the world. The disciples tried to keep people, kids away from him because kids weren't important in the first century. Jesus says, bring them on. Let's have a party here. At one point, there's a parade going into Jerusalem, and this is when Jesus was very popular. Huge crowds of people. And there's a big parade for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and there's some blind beggar who's been there for years on the side of the street. He starts interrupting the parade, screaming. And so the crowd says, shut up, man. You're going to ruin the parade. This guy's important. Be quiet. Who do you think you are? But Jesus stops the parade to minister to this guy. And he'll stop the parade for us. And you may be or feel like you're nothing in terms of the world standards, but to God you're important. He's never rude. He shows no partiality. None at all. Religious folks always do. The Pharisees were incredibly rude. In fact, they only talked to other Pharisees. They wouldn't talk to prostitutes or tax collectors. You kidding? They just ignored them. They would not ascribe worth to them. A lot of religious folks today still do the same thing. If you look at the way Paul treated people, when he was talking to the Jews who understood the law, he preached the law, that's true. But when he was talking to the Gentiles, it was a very different story. Paul at one point talks to these philosophers he says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious that you are in every way. And they had all these idols all over the place. So he could have just berated them, lit into them. But Paul walks in love, so you believe the best, you hope for the best. He's going to believe that these people are sincere, and so he compliments them. You guys are really religious, he says. I went through your city, I saw all your objects of worship. Doesn't call them idols, even, even though they were. He doesn't say those terrible, demonic, you know, ridiculous idols. No, he says you're religious objects of worship. You really got your bases covered. You're very religious, aren't you, he says. And then he says, but I noticed you have one over here to the unknown God. Can I talk to you about that one? I might have something to say here. Paul was not rude. He wasn't belligerent. Wasn't mean-spirited. He affirmed people. This is how you love. You affirm what can be affirmed. You believe the best. You hope for the best. Assume that they're trying their hardest and now find a crack in the door. That's what Paul does. Here's something we have in common, Paul says. He doesn't go after the hundreds of wrong idols. He goes after the one where there's a door for him to say something about, you know, about Jesus. He's like, you know, can I talk to you about Jesus? Because he knows if he can get them to start to tap into that true source of life, 
they're going to outgrow their need for those other false idols, other false sources of life. We are called to be people, we are called to all people at all times to demonstrate outrageous love. And love is considerate. You take into consideration what a person feels, what they think, what their opinions are. It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. It's a relationship. And that's how the kingdom of God goes forward. Beth, you want to come? Thank you, Chris. Can I have the altar ministry team come up? Let's stand. If you, if you are new here, I just want you to know that we are a praying church and we believe in the power of prayer and we would love to pray for you if you have any needs, whether it's physically, emotionally, if you're rude and you need to come up here, <laughs> we won't know that, but um, we do have a team that wants to pray with you. So if you have any, any needs if you just want blessed, if you want someone to partner with you in prayer, we would love to come up. We'd love to have you come up to pray. So, Jesus, we thank you so much that you are so considerate and that you love us and that you want us to live life abundantly and fully and that you give us everything that we need through you to do that. So I just pray this week as we go about that you would Put it in our mind to be considerate to others. Open our eyes to the goodness that you have and how you love people. And Lord, help us draw near to you and sit at your feet so that we can reflect you. In Jesus' name, amen.